little prayer before we start. Lord, you work through your Holy Spirit to bring words and a message through the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And we pray that you would help us to understand what is relevant for our life here today. And uh, fill us with your spirit to be empowered to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, by announcements, way of announcements, uh, the women, it's not just the Women's World Day of Prayer, apparently it's everybody's day of prayer these days. Uh, there's been a request that somebody read out a section of the program, so see me afterwards, there's a little uh, pamphlet on the table there, and <clears throat> it's not very much, but it's a lovely little testimony. So that's the request that one of the, one of the people going along will read that out on the day. 1 Timothy 6. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who are believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And so you have this little section in chapter 6 on slavery. Now, as you think about slavery, history tells us that Christians have worked to abolish slavery in the Western world. They have felt that the bigger picture from the Bible is that slavery is not a good thing. And the Apostle Paul may have felt the same too. But in this little instance, he only has a few verses to say something. So he cuts through all the issues to where the rubber meets the road, which is, if you are a slave and you're a believer, how should you treat your master? And Paul is quite clear that when you treat your master with respect, that you are actually honouring God's name. Because it stops people from slandering God. It doesn't give them a reason to write off your Christian witness. And whilst we ourselves are not slaves here, it's really an issue of how you respond to authority. And there are some authorities who like to lord it over us in the present day. And as the slave owner likes to exercise his authority in any way that he sees fit. So some of those authorities like to exercise their authority in any way they think is best. And so I think there's something we can draw out from this instruction to slaves by the Apostle Paul today. I think it has some relevance to how we respond to those who are in authority over us. And let us hear that our starting position so that authority is respect. We are asked to consider our masters worthy of full respect. And if you don't do that, well, they can just write you off as a troublemaker. They can just write you off as those funny Christians who are against progress or against every effort to cope with the modern world or move on. They're just against multiculturalism or they're just against being tolerant. If you show no respect for authority, then that authority feels fully justified in using whatever powers it has 
to wield its authority because they can then label you as an enemy, as a legitimate enemy. And then again, should your side win the day, you would actually want others to respect your authority, which they're unlikely to do if you didn't first respect their authority. And so if you don't show respect for authority, it means you're not focusing on the real issue. You're focusing <clears throat> on your battle against them. And if the authorities feel that you're attacking them and not the issue, then you're less likely to be heard. And although they may respond as if you're attacking them when you disagree with them, you've just got to make it clear, you know I'm not attacking you personally. I'm just attacking this issue. Let's stay with the issue. And the general rule is people won't give you respect unless you've first given them respect. So back to verse 2 then. When the authority and slave are both believers, Paul says that both parties should treat each other more lovingly. They should be equally devoted to each other's welfare. It said there in verse 2, those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of the slaves. And so in these couple of verses, Paul's cutting to the heart of living in a, what was then a very well-known social situation. There were masters, there were slaves. He was cutting to the heart of what's going on, which is how do you respond one to another and not tackling the bigger issue of whether actually slavery was wrong or right. It took almost... 2,000 years of Christian thought to work that out, but we did. Praise the Lord. And so there's slavery and how you respond to authority. What about the next section? Verse 3 to 10, Paul's going to move on. He's going to talk about false teachers and a love of money. Do those things go together? Well, we'll find out. He's talking about the people that Timothy is going to face in his pastorate. Not much has changed, has it, since 2,000 years? And as a contrast to the false teachers, he's going to give a model of the correct character that he's after. What's the real character he's after? And we're going to look at Paul's letter to Philippians here. We're going to move over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. And we're going to see there where Paul's writing... It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. It's a bit sad that there's no one else who's going to show genuine concern for their welfare, is it? Because everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. And so as we hear, back in 1 Timothy, Paul's description of some problem people that Timothy is going to come up against, notice that the first thing they have wrong is that they're not genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. They're clever guys. They're argumentative guys who just want to get their opinion off. They're people who like to play with words, tease out fine distinctions, 
guys are caught up in the idea so much that they feel they can criticise and they can abuse and just fight each other because they've got an opposing view and have lost track of being genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Let's see that in chapter, in verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Now, if anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to God they're teaching, what are they? They are conceited. They understand nothing. Because, because they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. And what's the result of that? Fighting over words and distinctions, you get envy, you get strife, you get malicious talk, you get evil suspicions. And that leads to constant friction between people of a corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So beware of thinking that somebody with a different viewpoint from you is your enemy. Monitor yourself to see whether the things that you're worried about have so taken over your thoughts that they have driven you to not have a genuine concern for the welfare of the other person. Verse 4 gives you a checklist so you can see how your thoughts are going. If what you're thinking leads to envy or what you're thinking leads to strife or to malicious talk, if it leads to just being suspicious, if it leads to constant friction, then you can get an idea that maybe these thoughts are taking over you, leading you astray. And the idea is, all right, if that's the case, let it go. Because these thoughts that you're having do not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching. So remember again, what was Timothy's main characteristic from Philippians? I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for our welfare. And that's our starting point of the desirable characteristics for authority figures, for colleagues, for family, for children, servants, associates, genuine concern for the welfare. And we note again the difference from Philippians, the different attitude which Paul is preaching against here in 1 Timothy, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. One thing I've noticed over the years is what happens when you get a new leader. It seems to be that the core of being the new leader in it is to uh, uh, make it your job, exert your leadership. Now, if you were in the academic world, by definition, if you do a PhD, you have to do something which nobody else has done before. You have to do original research, come up with something that no one else has come up with. And in the Christian teacher's realm, seems to be the same for so many. They want to be the person who's come up with something original. They want to tell you something that they've seen in the scripture which nobody else has seen beforehand. And they're the ones with the new insights. And every young preacher wants to make his mark. But hopefully, 
and get through to eventually realize that more important than thinking that we are a great teacher is the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bigger than how we interpret the Bible is the actual teaching of the Bible. And hopefully all of us will get to preaching like Timothy out of genuine concern for others and not out of concern for people to say, oh, you're pretty clever. You've worked out something pretty good. And so one of the indications that you are not preaching from this place of genuine concern is your attitude to money. In Paul's day, there were some who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You know, any preachers who like to show off their wealth? Who like to say, you can have this too, if you trust enough. Or if you follow the new interpretation that I've discovered from the scripture. People who say, being rich, that's a sign that God's pleased with you. So godliness is a means to financial gain. Hmm. Over the years, as a musician, people come up and say, oh, who's the, who's the best drummer in the world? Who's the best violinist? Who's the best trumpeter? Such and such, he's the best. Billy hit the drums a lot. They got no idea. There is no one single best person in the world in any category. It's impossible to quantify one person as being the best. And so from that, it's the same with money. It's impossible to quantify when you have enough money. It's impossible to say whether you have too much or too little. The only things that you can quantify is whether you spent more or less than you earned, or probably more for life for us is whether you have enough income to service your debts or not. And I wonder what the figure is for you if you said, if I just had this much amount of money, I'd have no more money worries. What is it for you? 10,000? 10 million? What is the figure that you think? If I had that much, I'd be happy, I'd be relaxed, I'd be content. Because whatever that figure is, if you think contentment is going to come from that figure, then you're barking up the wrong money tree. Because contentment does not come from a figure. It comes from godliness. Our key verse this morning, godliness with contentment is great gain. A while back in a place called Andermatt in Switzerland, some workmen, they were repairing a wall that runs around the old churchyard and they came upon several skeletons. And on disturbing one of them, the jaw swings open and out falls two gold coins from the reign of Charles VIII of France at the end of the 15th century. And they looked a bit further and in in one bony hand of a skeleton was a piece of linen rag, still in excellent preservation. They unfolded the rag and the men brought to light ten silver coins of the 16th century of the time of Francis I. 
So here was a person at Andermatt who didn't understand these next two verses from 1 Timothy. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we shall be content with that. You know that great conqueror of so much of the world, Alexander the Great from Greece? He understood that. According to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we're told that when Alexander, the conqueror of the world, was dying, he gave orders that at his burial, his hands should be exposed to public view so that all men would see that the mightiest of men could take nothing with him when he was called away by death. Do you know what the biggest job that the majority of the world faces each day is? Getting enough food to eat. Just getting enough food to eat. Some missionary friends of mine related well, their time in Irian Jaya, that in that little uh, community, most of the day was spent going out into the jungle, scouring the jungle for food, to have enough to have a full belly at the end of the day. And so, as we think about planning our businesses and our farms and setting up our superannuation and retirement farms, homes, don't forget... We are way ahead of the daily struggle of most of the people on this planet. But contentment is not found where you are on the wealth continuum, you know. If this was the poorest here and that was the richest there, contentment doesn't depend where you are on that line. Your contentment will not come with a figure. For those who are caught by the lie that how much is enough? Well, just a little bit more. Consider lottery winners. I don't know if it's been claimed yet, but apparently there's an unclaimed lottery ticket in New, New York and I think it's worth about $25 million. And many of us go, oh, how good that would be. How great to be suddenly rich. But if that entices you, a thought of instant and unearned wealth. For those who are constantly on the lookout for the new best business deal, for those who are constantly looking for bargains and exceptional deals, let's hear the next verses in Timothy, verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not money, but it's the love of money. Some people, eager for money, yeah, give me more, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And so the contentment that we're all after an inner sense of being secure in this life, of having enough, doesn't come from money. Missionaries have gone out into other countries, into very poor areas, have been amazed at the happiness of kids, and people who've got barely enough to eat will invite them in and, and be happy to have a meal with them. They're the poorest of the poor. 
They can be content there. A love of money, a root, not the root, but a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the money, is it? The Jewish people did consider and recognise that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And if you go back to Isaac in chapter 26 of Genesis, Genesis 26 verse 12, see an interesting thing. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold. Maybe some of the farmers here are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. I don't know whether that's a verse for someone this morning. Seeking the blessing of God. Maybe you're not living in a way that you know God will bless. But that's the thing that makes a difference, the blessing of God. It's more than your hard work. The man who became rich, well the man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. And I think you can say from scripture there's a general principle that living as a Christian is conducive to wealth. Developing a good character produces many positive wealth producing qualities. For example, you give up chasing those quick, that get rich quick schemes. You don't spend all your money on your lusts and desires because you have something better. You deal honestly and with integrity in business and relationships because you're not trusting in your skills, you're trusting in the Lord's blessing. And actually you're willing to say sorry more when you stuff up in relationships. And so are less likely to avoid the quickest way to poverty which is getting a divorce. But hopefully you fall in love with God more than all those things. And you fall out of love for money. Yes, living as a Christian is conducive to wealth, but it doesn't guarantee wealth because wealth is variable. It's so variable. There are problems with the climates which lead to feasts and famines. We know about droughts and plenty in here, in this region. There are wars of many types which affect the supply chain, apart from whatever else they affect. There are attitudes in society which vary over time. Sometimes it's more conducive to Christian belief and the people are called to different things. Some, people, some Christians are called into very minimal um, money-earning uh, places and others are called into more. It's variable. But to think that it's the money that gets you through, that it's the money that makes you feel secure, that the money requires your constant attention, it needs your loving care, that is a foundational root of evil. I'll give you a parallel here of love and loving attention. You know, I think, and uh, you can counsel my wife afterwards and help her, but I think that one of the great sadnesses of life for many women is that the loving attention which they received when they were, someone was wooing them and courting them tends to drop off when, the other, when he's got the girl. Because he's done that job, now he's on to his next job. And, but that loving attention being the main focus is an analogy of what some people do with money. Over a lifetime they put energy and focus into getting their money. But in courtship the energy and focus gets the girl. But in business, 
All it gets is the money. We came across an interesting proverb at Wednesday night Bible study. Proverb 11.16 says, A kind-hearted woman gains honour, but ruthless men gain only wealth. So you've got kind-hearted, you've got ruthless. And we thought about the difference between the kind-hearted and the ruthless approach and the different outcomes of those approaches. And the person who loves money is prone to becoming competitively ruthless in order to gain wealth. But at the end of the day, all he has is his money. The kind-hearted woman ends up with honour in the community and she ends up with people who respect her because she has the human touch. She's good at relationships and she ends up with relationships. But I think, of course, the clincher for people who love money and give it that sustained focus and attention, who court it over a lifetime, is that you can't take it with you. And we remember Alexander the Great buried with his hands out just to say, you can't take it with you. So if you can't take it with you, relax on the building of your empire. How much do we need? Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 8 there, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. And in Philippians 4, he says, verse 12 of Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret. This is the secret. I've learned the secret of being content. Being content in each and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or, or in want. We need less than we think we need, don't we, in order to be content. But we also know that Paul says, hey, you've got to learn to do that. From Philippians verse 4, verse 12, he said, I've learned the secret of being content. We have to cultivate our understanding of what really does produce contentment because all of us want it, but we don't always look in the right place to get it. And perhaps the key component of being content is, at, is being able to be at rest, to be at rest. God did that. He created the heavens and the earth, seventh day. He rested. He called it the Sabbath. And the person who wrote Hebrews spent some time explaining that you find that rest, which is like a Sabbath rest, when you do what? When you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Because that's the place of rest. The place of contentment is first and foremost found by believing in Jesus. And we'll see that in Hebrews for the first three verses, although they're answering a bigger question than we're looking at, it still does say, answer our question. It says in verse 2, For we also, we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they didn't, basically, they didn't believe it. They didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. But we who have believed enter that rest. Belief in Jesus is the way to enter into rest, into contentment. But it's a process. It takes time to understand the, what the Bible is saying about what you really do have. And when you become a believer and are born again, and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, you become a child of God. You become a fellow heir. There's many things 
You receive spiritual gifts. You receive a calling. You receive a mission. You receive a community of fellow believers. You receive an inheritance in heaven. You receive the Bible to guide you and so much more. Your sins are covered. They're paid for. You're redeemed from the slave market of sin. But that has to get into your heart and into your understanding, all of that. And you only find that truth in the scriptures. And the only way you get it into you to get to the place of contentment is to read enough, to meditate enough, so those truths enter your daily life and you learn to be content. And contentment also understands what you can take with you into the next life. Have you ever thought about that? Am I working on things that I can take with me into the next life? We'll see in verse 17 to 19 that the things you can, well, you can't take financial wealth, but you can take good deeds and you can take generosity and you can take a willingness to share and that is building up in heaven heavenly treasure, treasure in the next life. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth because that's so uncertain. They put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And so come, these are the things. Command them, do good. You want to take stuff with you into the next life? Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous. Be willing to share. Because in this way, you will lay up, they will lay up for themselves treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age, now the coming age is in heaven, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, which eternal life, that's the true life. And you know something else you can take into eternity? People who come to the Lord through your life, through your ministry, through your witness. That's an all-day an all-day sucker, that one. Think about that one. You can take people into eternity. And we can take godliness into eternity. Now, that's that. The, the closer we are to God, you're going to be with God. You're going to, well, work on being like God. When you become a Christian, that just starts off your life of being transformed to becoming more God-life. That's a process called sanctification. You gradually get purified from sin. You learn the values of God. You learn what God likes. And you try to align yourself with that. Which does require some thinking. You get changed. Romans 12.2 Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but you're transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. Thinking better. And we think better when we fill our mind with God's truth, with the Bible. And as we do, gradually we learn Paul's secret of being content in whatever situation we find ourselves. And we learn the truth that godliness with contentment that is great game. Will you pray with me? Contentment in godliness. Putting those two things together. Lord, we want to pause before you in this moment. 
and we want to acknowledge that there's some things about which we are not content. But the thing is, they may or they may not change, but whether they do not or whether they do change is not the point. The contentment is not found in that situation. Contentment is found in godliness, in trusting in God, in taking your eyes off the problems and saying, maybe I'm not as godly in this area as I need to be. So Lord, please, we lay down and we admit our sins. We confess our sins before you now. We confess our lack of trust. We confess that we have looked so long at the problems that we've made them bigger than you. And so we want to look at you. We want to look at the Lord Jesus in this moment and find our contentment in the only place that exists, in our relationship with you, in our trust in you. Praise be to God. in whom we rest, in whom we move and live and have our being. Amen and hallelujah. Yes, true contentment and godliness comes from being nearer to God.